Oh my God. Kathy Lee and Regis had nothing over you two. (laughs) (laughs) You're the best. We we, we trust that opinion as well. Susan, you know, this is a really serious topic, obviously. And I think a lot of (laughs) Oh my God. She's literally just like us. We talk about like the deepest, most miserable, horrible things, but like, we also can't stop making each other laugh. And so, yeah, it's like the levity and the darkness and the <laughs> joy and the pain and the. We go and on? that's that's actually the beauty of having done the work. This podcast represents the opinions of our hosts and guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only. This podcast also does not establish a standard of care, doctor patient, or client relationship. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. And because each person is so unique, all listeners are encouraged to connect with counseling and medical professionals for assistance with their personal journey. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Welcome to We're Not Fine. I'm Dr. Talia Jackson. And I'm Doug Jensen. We thank you for listening every week to our deep and thought-provoking conversations about relationships. Hi, everybody. Welcome, Welcome back to We're Not Fine. I was, that's my line. Is it always your line? Welcome to We're Not Fine. And I say it in like a weird Hey, guys. Voice. Welcome to We're Not Fine. <laughs> your podcast about all things relationships. <laughs> I can tell that we usually <laughs> do, do it differently. You, yes, exactly. Because that was really short. I know. Do you say You just kind of said all things. All things relationships and. What if you just said intimacy? Intimacy. Okay. No, it's not all about intimacy. I we usually do the other way, so we should. Uh, go ahead. Oh well, I guess what you guys. <laughs> Happy Jewish New Year. Ooh. So I I thought we should maybe redo the intro like five more times. Oh my gosh. I, I don't even think they've seen that last intro and outro. What is it? Where I forced you to do the outro three times. I don't. <laughs> And then you were doing a lot of huffing and puffing and rolling your eyes, and that's the one that we're going with. Good. So that sounds like a good plan. We invited Douglas L. Jensen over for oh. Rosh Hashanah dinner, and it was his first experience. He said he did have matzo balls before. I've had matzo balls before, but your mother's matzo ball soup was outstanding. Yes. I think I'm the only one that finished mine, though. Yes, I mean, because... Like, I love it. Maybe, go ahead. The matzo balls are so dense. And once you eat a matzo ball, it's really hard to keep moving on to the rest of the stuff. But yeah, she was a little offended that not everyone finished every sip. But I was in her favor because I finished my matzo ball soup. I want to talk about this a little bit. So, as many... I don't know how much has been revealed, but Talia, you have an extensive history that's connected to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, as I was listening to her mother, who is what, 33 years old? That's right. Plus a few. She's almost 80. I know. And she has a story. Yes. About the Holocaust. And I, as I listened to it unfold, I found myself listening intently and just being very, very touched by her story and it came out so easily and then at one point when i asked her like how does it feel to tell the story she has told it a number of times and she wants to tell it yes i mean all of the people that have experienced it in one way or another they're either a hundred years old if they've actually you know been in it they're in their 90s and it's sort of this legacy that gets passed down generation to generation. It's a story that needs to be told. And it's also like there's trauma, right? Intergenerational trauma. Which, Talia, as I said to you, <clears throat> on a very kind of personal note, you know, related to my friend Talia, I, I start thinking about that. Like as therapists, we kind of go down people's histories. We go down where were your grandparents born? How did how did things transition? And you learn so much about somebody, right, because of their history and because of where they came from and where they got to now and it is so powerful but her mother i was mesmerized by i just wanted to hear more and more and more and i found myself of course getting a little teary and how very just incredibly tragic and horrific people can treat each other in the course of our history and so i don't know i kind of want i kind of want talia's mother on the podcast but i don't know that that will be a good idea. I mean, she is a very spicy, spicy lady. I'm sure she would have a lot to say. 
And she makes really good matzo ball soup. Yum. The whole meal, by the way, was amazing. Why, thank you. Whatever that thing is on that salmon. The rub? You like my rub? Oh my God. It's so good. It's like garlic powder, brown sugar, paprika, lime zest. I think basil, (laughs) dried basil. But basil. All right. I loved it. It was really good. And, you know, honestly, and it made the celebration so incredibly. Thank you so much for I'm having so me I'm so glad again. you were there because, yeah, you know that my little one often is incredibly shy. And he was spent the beginning kind of hiding out a little bit. And then all of a sudden he was your best friend. We were playing all sorts of games at the table. He played Moonlight Sonata for Multiple you. Multiple times because I kept saying <laughs> I'd like to hear it again. And he's like, really? And I'm like, yes, I'd like to hear it again and again and again. It's so good. And I was in a, I was again in a trance as he was playing. He so he's dyslexic and he doesn't know how to read I music. Don't, dude, it's just like he plays yeah. from his soul. He's sort of this like elfin, I love, I love your children. creature. I love your husband. I love your children. I love you. I love your mother. Well, so, good thing that you're a part of the fam. As are you mine. You guys, we have a beautiful episode today and really powerful. Our guest is Susan Gold, and she is here to talk about her, I mean, also intergenerational trauma and a toxic childhood and escaping a narcissistic marriage. And we, you know, we love a good comeback story. And she wrote a book, and we're so excited to introduce her to you. We wanted to tell you before we dive in that it is incredibly deep and it's powerful. And we just want to make sure that you know it's a story of abuse. Please take care of yourselves. And if it's too triggering, we trust that you're going to do right by yourself and make sure you've got self-care and support around it. Without further ado. We're not fine family. We are beyond excited to introduce to you the beautiful and talented Susan Gold, who is a true <laughs> Renaissance woman. Like, seriously, like what what don't you do, really? Well, we'll find out uh, if there is anything. There's, yeah, we're going to find out what you don't do. An endurance athlete, a mom of a son in college. And it sounds like you also have a handful of rescue animals and that you're really a big part of this world, which I love so much. We have a few ourselves. And you were formerly in New York working in the entertainment industry with a lot of A-listers, which is also really fascinating. And now you live in rural Montana and it feels like you're just like blissed out in nature. And (laughs) that just, it's really pretty incredible. It could be. Welcome, Susan. We're so lucky to have you today. My gosh, I think I'm going to sign up for a recording every day of the week. I just know. <laughs> meet you guys. Like, and she has amazing classes. And <laughs> Talia, you and I talked and when we had a pre-interview conversation on our love of glasses. Yeah. It's- True. It's they're working the, for both of you for sure. The perfect accessory. I, I feel like I should get some blank ones for glasses day. You should. What if I just did this? I wore my white ones every day for like eight months. And then I think one of your friends said, I need a, to change my glasses. Did one of my friends say that? Yes. Who did it? <laughs> you know, the, the one guy that you dated for two minutes. He was like, I don't even know who that is. He was like, oh. she was fantastic. <laughs> she needs to get more pairs of glasses. And I'm like, I do. Okay. I really do. Okay. I didn't know he said that. So I moved into uh, my fall and winter. Luckily, we pair. broke up. Well, I didn't even. I don't think. We I don't even dated. think you were dating. No, we really weren't. Anyway, we're off. <laughs> um, Susan, so welcome. Susan is here today to talk to us because she has a really powerful story to tell that we felt like our listeners needed to hear. For sure. And you wrote a book that sums it up. It's called Toxic Family: Transforming Childhood Trauma into adult freedom and you share your journey of abuse addiction and surviving narcissism in this relationship that you got out of which you're going to tell us about as well and all the while somehow created this fantastic career and yeah we want to hear we want to hear your story 
It all sounds great, but Talia, I can't like stop looking at how your nails look like they match the we're not fine. Uh, I do. They, they totally do. do. Well, because I decided that purple was going to be the new fall color. I had a lot of like turquoise all summer. It's a really boring story. Want me to go I think on? it's fascinating. I think, it's, <laughs> I think we should talk about nails for purple? a while. You know, purple. It's fall. <laughs> I've decided. Sorry, Doug. We we interrupted no, okay. you. You were gonna you were gonna be the master of ceremonies and get us focused on. I actually was gonna focus off it's of true. glasses. Although we can, I yeah. Anyway, I'll um, just do the whole interview like this. Yeah, if you my, could. My finger and nails. Could, could you face. get glasses to match that? Yes, I shall. Yes. So, oh my God, Ka Kathy Lee and Regis had nothing over you two. <laughs> You're the best. We, 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 we trust you. that opinion as well. Susan, you know, this is a really serious topic, obviously. And I think a lot of <laughs> Oh my God, she's literally just like us. We talk about like the deepest, most miserable, horrible things. But like, we also can't stop making each other laugh. And so, yeah, it's like the levity and the darkness and so, the joy and the pain and the. Should we go? And that's that's actually the beauty of having done the work. Yeah, because yes, I get that a lot. People don't understand why you know I'm glowing, I'm smiling. I have a relationship with my family. Yeah. I have respect and love for them. Mm. And yeah, that's what happens when you really dive deep. You know, get courageous, look at the patterning, look at your past. So, Susan, that's exactly where we want to start. Mm. Like, and a thank you for that kind of beautiful segue because um, and the laughter about this serious topic, <laughs> which is fantastic, by the way. And it does show your work and it shows that you've worked through. Um, I will tell you, I'm very curious to hear about your family and your origin and your childhood and all of the pieces of the puzzle, because we as therapists, we do this long history. Most of us, I will say, I don't want to say most of us. Tali and I really value the history of people to kind of understand how those puzzle pieces work together to make our choices, to make how we make our decisions, who we are as people, how we feel about ourselves, what our models are. Thank you for continuing to smile. Um, we'd love to hear your story and your background. Yeah, I just want to say both my maternal and paternal grandmothers, when I asked that they would never marry my grandfathers again if they had the opportunity. Wow. So why? You know, I think they were both imprisoned. Um, my maternal grandfather was horribly abused. As a child, he was beaten by his stepmother when he was very young, almost to the point of death. And that triggered psychotic episodes. And he perpetrated the same behavior on my mother. And she was beaten. And then it was assumed she would not discuss it. And my grandfather also encouraged my mother's mother, my maternal grandmother, not to show affection to the kids just because of what he had experienced. And he thought he was doing that from a place of love. My father's father was a big Peter Pan and baby. He really didn't want children, but his mother was very go by the book. You get married and you have children. That's what you do. And therefore, my father could do no, nothing right. Um, my He was always judged harshly by his father. And my grandmother, his mother, tried to make up for it. And so he came to the point where he thought women were to serve and to serve him. And he was also a bit of a Peter Pan, in my opinion, and he sued through alcohol and my mother soothed through food. Mm. And they had five children in very short succession because that's what you do. And um, they had a religious understanding that, you know, you didn't stop that. Um, and it was chaotic in our home. I was the middle of five children. And my father was drinking 7.30 a.m. The whiskey bottle would uncork and you hear glug, glug, glug. My mother was on diet pills because that's what they prescribed back then, which were straight speed. Mm -hmm. So this was not a hotbed of mental health. And I also believe my mother was challenged with either borderline personality or schizophrenia because she could be so incredibly loving, guys. 
But then the next moment, and for no reason, I was being beaten to the point where I'd brown out and almost lose consciousness. So it was very unstable. I was quite empathic and intuitive, meaning I could enter the room and I could feel the emotion right away. One of them, I was five. My father was in a cast. The, their bedroom window was broken. Cold air was coming in. And my mother is looking away on the distance while my father's making fun of himself for punching the window and having to go to the ER in the middle of the night. And all I wanted to do was fix this, fix the energy between them, and get out of that room as soon as possible. And this patterning followed. I didn't have a lot of self-worth or esteem. The girls were expected to clean house and cook meals and grow up way before we were to grow up. And the boys took out the, tra the trash. So, you know, I, I got in this pattern of sort of enslavement very early. And all I wanted to do was get out. I'd watch Barbara Walters on my beanbag chair in my basement. And I was like, I'm going to New York City. I'm going to go there someday. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to go. And suffice it to say, I left the morning after I graduated from high school. Wow. And I was terrified, even though I had focused on getting out from a very young age, nine or 10 years old, you know, the, the planning started. And by 19, I was living in Greenwich Village on my own during an internship from college and then went back to New York City immediately after college and started working in a glitzy talent agency called ICM and wasn't making enough money. So I started training people on the side and Barbara Walters became a client. Ah. Wait, what so, do you mean training? Wow. What kind of training? Like personal trainers do that, you know, come to your house and train you or at the gym, you get somebody one on one to train you. That's what I was doing way back before it was chic. And unbelievable. Yeah, well, there's more. So, <laughs> she loved you. She one day I, I rang her doorbell at seven and she took a look at me and she said, Susan, get in here. What's going on with you? And back then I was very tight lipped, you know, didn't really share my issues with anybody. And she got it out of me within moments. I had been sexually harassed in the workplace the day before by my boss. And she said, I'm coming to work with you this morning and we're going to confront this man together. And I said, you know, that's OK, Barbara, I'm, I'm going to handle it. So I went to work that day and confronted my boss. He promptly fired me. And I had two and a half months of cash in the bank. I was newly sober because the same issues that I saw demonstrated in my own family were coming up for me, using alcohol, using food to placate and soothe. And I had just extricated myself from an abusive relationship where the man held the power through the purse strings. I'm embarrassed to say, but that's the truth. So I was highly motivated to succeed running my own talent brokerage firm. Barbara offered me an assistantship with her then fiance, who was running Laura Mar, a film distribution company. But I I couldn't do it after after the abuse. I, I just couldn't play that role anymore. Mm. So there I was <laughs> like praying, hoping. And somehow I was introduced to Donnie Deutsch, who's an entrepreneur and a television and iconic host. And Donnie was running his dad's ad agency. And he said, I want Andy Warhol to endorse my Pontiac dealership. Do you think you can get him? And I was like, well, I'll try. So I couldn't get anybody at the factory to pick up the phone. So I took the subway from the Upper West Side, where I lived, down to Murray Hill and knocked on the brownstone door. And Fred, Andy's manager, answered the door. And he looked at me and I introduced myself and I told him why I was there. And he said, OK, well, you come back tomorrow at this same time and I'll let you talk to Andy. You must be really great at immediately connecting and making these relationships work from, I mean, usually people don't come and knock on a door of a brownstone and then get the meeting. That's amazing. It was something that I learned in that family of origin. And thank God I knew how to read the room. And it was a tool that I used to stay safe yep, of and secure. I call it scam. Yeah. You learn to like read people. And you're determining safety or you're determining mood 
it is a way that people cope. You you so eloquently talk about it, Susan. But you Please turned continue. it into a superpower. It, well, yeah. I mean, I was telepathic. I could get full sentences before it just turned too dangerous and that wasn't acceptable. So I shut that down. But I knew going into that room that day with Andy, I mean, the, I had to wait for a while. I was so nervous, but the double doors to his studio flew open and it was dark in there, you guys. And I was scared to go in, but there was a pin spotlight in the center of the room coming down on this platinum hair going 17 different directions. And he was coloring away with colored pencils. Oh my God. And three pugs, like these little dogs with the smushed faces. No, I've, got a couple, I've got a couple of them at home, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, well, Andy would have loved your dogs. So Andy could care less why I was there. I was like yammering on and these three dogs were running around the studio and tugging at his pants leg and he's pulling him up and holding him like a baby. And this did not fly by me. I saw it. And finally, he made eye contact for the first time. It was after about oh, five minutes, which seemed like 55. And he said, now, really, why should I do this? And I just stopped. And I took a breath and I said, because your pugs can be in the shot with you. Oh, you're so good. I didn't know if that was true, but he said, I'll do it. And that's really the deal that solidified my reputation of being able to match celebrities to brands. And that led me to do, do some work for Roger Ailes and Fox News Channel helping him launch that channel ultimately, and then going to LA to do the same and led me into producing for film and for television. And it was a great career, but what I've discovered was it's not the reason I'm here. It's not my purpose and it's not my mission. Do we, do we ask her what that is now or save it for later? We ask her right now to keep the flow going because we're off the script and I want to know. what I know. Purpose tell is. us. Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> we're off script. Oh, no. We're off script. So, so I've been privileged to see up close household names, right? And I can see that they're individual human beings pulling their legs, you know, pants legs on one at a time and in public and how painful that is. But I can see how all our programming and our past ancestry and lineage impacts our present. Yeah. And I've always stood up to truth. My mother used to, you know, insist I was not telling the truth. And maybe that has <laughs> some, mm -hmm. something to play into why I am really honest, brutally honest. And I've had so many experiences um, you know, standing up to narcissistic abuse, standing up to sexual abuse, standing up to alcoholism and addictions, standing up to clinical depression, and really telling the truth that this is my purpose and my mission to out a very taboo topic, to talk about toxicity in our in our bloodlines, in our family lines. So it becomes a more normal conversation and less obscured and so we can drop that bag of shame that's so weighted that we're carrying i mean nothing pains me more especially to see someone who's so pure of heart carrying this guilt that like doesn't belong to them at all so that's my mission and my purpose and there it's is really lovely it's it is it's incredible and there's something about you feeling that it is your mission and your purpose to speak the truth about something really ugly that many carry so much shame around and you embodying that and modeling it it really does lift a lot of shame for everyone that you come in contact with and um it's just i can't think of a better purpose here's what i want to say like i just want to highlight a couple of things that you said that i think are really important to our viewers um you know one of the things and i again i'm probably a little more serious about this than um because i take this I, by the way we have somewhat similar backgrounds mm -hmm. i will tell you susan and so the reason I think I'm a therapist is because I learned to scan what was a very unpredictable emotional experience in my household as well. Mm -hmm. So you learn to scan. And so I use that now as a therapist to read people and interpret behaviors, etc. Um, you know, you have an experience of speaking up as well in that workplace. 
Um, thank God you had Barbara. Uh, again, may she rest in peace in whatever world that is that she's in now. Um, but that experience of speaking up as a woman, I just, you know, thank you for doing it. You should be able to do it. The response of getting terminated was fucked up, mm -hmm. as we know. So, but it led to you having more and more and more opportunities. I want to go to the brutally honest comment. Like, I was really drawn to it. I smiled when you said it because I think we become brutally honest when we've been kind of screwed up and, you know, mind fucked and there was gaslighting and whatever else that we had growing up. We learn to be brutally honest as a means of like managing that. Like, we, we manage our lives and the chaos of it by if we stay honest, then at least we know that we're in control of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's the goal. So, really unbelievable. But I wanted to highlight the importance of being honest. Because it helps you cope. It helps you feel like you don't have to be in chaos. There's no game playing in your life as a result of that. So amazing work. I have so many questions still, but, you know, I just wanted to highlight those before we go on. I mean, how can we keep this short? I just feel I like know. it's impossible. And you're like the world's most fast. I know you said 35, 40 minutes. I'm like, there's Forget not a chance. I, well, I, no, we will. I want like five hours. Maybe we need part two and three with you. I or maybe know. we play it back at like hyper speed, like chipmunk speed. And yeah. so it'll be a shorter episode. Yeah, that's going to be really we'll good. just sound like chipmunks. That's how I feel I've been telling this story. I'm not yeah. letting you get in word in edgewise. But, but Doug, I'm really glad that you brought up the brutally honest part because that has also saved me. I mean, when I went to my first therapist, I was brutally honest. I said, my life is out of control and completely unmanageable. And he made suggestions based on that. He immediately started talking, was there alcoholism in my family? I, I, what are you talking about? Like, what does that have to do with my pro? I've got some serious issues, dude. And he's like, yeah, while you're in treatment with me, no drinking, go to AA to listen to your to the people talk about your dad's drinking problem, which was very smart. And then go to to um, meetings for for children that had grown up with addicts and learn about how that affected you. And and that was genius, but I would have never taken that opportunity had I not been brutally honest with myself and willing. And that has helped me all along the way walk through what I've addressed. I appreciate you explaining that a little bit uh, further. I also will tell you, Susan, you know, as well as I do, this is the way to live. Mm -hmm. You know, brutal honesty is the way to live. I think, you know, we walk around in so many different ways. You're now in the Midwest as well. You know, we, we have a lot of people who do not tell people what they really feel, what they really think. And the important thing is to do that. And I also love that you identify that starting therapy for you, it was like connecting the dots, yes. which your therapist was doing quickly. You're like, what the hell does that have to do with right. anything? It has everything to do with everything. Every piece of our lives together kind of creates who we are. And I, you know, I just want to say too, like I, we, we can certainly go on to more questions, but the part that I'm struck by is we also never forget that while you do do your work and you can smile about this and you can tell your story so eloquently, we always have that trauma with us in some ways. We all always have those experiences and they come up at different times in our lives, particularly when we're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I think when we're depleted. So I imagine that for you as well. Have you found that? I love, I love that you talk about the trauma. And for me, I compartmentalized it. I did tons of work on it. And the talk therapy was essential to get down the storyline and the narrative. Yeah. Where I really started shifting was more somatic work. So hypnosis, oh. meditation, um, going within my body and exploring yeah. where I was holding the trauma. Is it in the solar plexus? What color yeah. is it? What's the timeline? Is this current? Is it from my past? Is it from lifetimes ago. So this kind of work really is what shifted me at a cellular level wow. and really created change within my being. That yeah. just gives me chills. And it is, there's such this mind body peace in trauma. And that's why, I mean, a lot of times I'm sure you do as well when I'm working with people and we seem to be stalled out with just the talk therapy, not just because it's also life-changing, but you really do sometimes need a somatic element because sometimes the pain is not accessible by words. It feels like it's in the cellular level. Do you want to share a little bit about how you got in touch to do that work, that somatic work? Yeah. Oh. 
So I've always responded from, you know, the body, the being. I've been very physical since I was very young. It was really encouraged. I started as, you know, dancing. Um, and then that developed into marathoning, triathloning, and all the other endurance stuff that I've done. So I'm very in touch with my body and in tune. But what I didn't want to do was really feel. I mean, when I started this work, I barely knew happy, mad, sad, and glad. I was very shut down. I was like a concrete stone, and I didn't have time for that. And I certainly didn't have time for that bright, beautiful light of that inner child you know, Susie that had walked through this whole storyline. So it was essential that I do this kind of work to finally slow down that overstimulated central nervous system that was working on overdrive to just stay safe. And even to come into touch with my breathing mm. was triumphant. To yeah. just be embodied and to be in your body in a way that felt safe maybe for the first time ever and to come from the inside out i mean that took a really long time i was always outside in and i knew it i mean i was blessed to be invited to la for what i thought was an amazing career opportunity and it was it was yeah. it was really great but i was really invited there to meet the man who would become my greatest guru uh, as in the word teacher, I want to define. And that was the man who would become my ex-husband. Yes. Tell us how, tell us how that, because it sounds like it started as this beautiful love story and then in full, unfolded into narcissistic abuse. So he was everything I thought I wanted. Um, and we had so much in common. And he also knew how to make me feel special. Mm. And so we we dated for a long time and lived together before we decided to marry and ultimately have our son. And what was happening were there were red flags that were coming up. I was feeling more drained. My life was getting smaller. I was carrying a lot of weight. And um, when I bought the house for our family and after we had had our son, that's when the veil ripped off the ruse. Um, that's when things got tougher and I knew there was something wrong. And you know how you hear the word, you hear the word alcoholic and alcoholism, but you really don't know how that could impact you in a relationship right. with an alcoholic. It was the same with the word narcissist. I had heard that word, but I sort of just blew by that word yeah. and I didn't understand it. Just like I blew by the word empath. You know, I didn't really understand that as it related to my own personality. So here I was um, just really carrying a lot of the weight, working a night job to keep it together. Um, and I was trying to make my partner come to the plate with integrity, especially fiscally, and it was not working. And I knew the marriage was well past its expiration date, but I was so codependent mm -hmm. and I was so accomplished. I was so capable. My friends were like, they, they couldn't understand this. You know, how could that be? You're carrying the weight of your household. You bought the house. You're doing all the repairs. You're doing all the taxes. Like you're taking care of your son. Like, can't you just step up and like tell this guy, like make it happen? But I couldn't. So ultimately I got this idea. We were going to create a, a postnuptial agreement to bring some integrity in. And we got to the last point and I thought, wow, my, our marriage is safe. This is fantastic. And his eyes went in those cold reptilian like slits and he folded his arms and he said, I'm hiring an attorney and I'm filing for divorce. Yeah. And that intuitive voice like flew over my right shoulder through mm -hmm. my heart and it said this is the universe doing for you what you cannot do for yourself wow i've got chills well i held on to that talia i needed to we we went back to reside in the same home and i can't even call it a home through this year period it was a domicile. And this is a metaphor for the relationship. He would not leave the master bedroom. So I took up residence on a mattress on the floor in a partial conversion in our garage. 
And that is the billboard it took to fall on my head to see what I was allowing, to see where my value and my worth was. And instead of becoming victim, I decided this was my opportunity to really dive deep yet again. And that's when I did the most work internally with the help of a woman in Australia that had a program that was somatic specific to narcissistic abuse. And it was a year of holding no contact, meaning no verbal contact and no eye contact with the man that I had loved because that was what it took to divorce one whom I feel was a narcissist. And I kept repeating that mantra, this is the universe doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. And when it felt unjust, and when I was enraged by what seemed like the lack of integrity, I just repeated, this is who you've settled for. And now it's time for you to step up and walk through. So within a calendar year, I was able to write him his six-figure check, and he could go on to his next source of supply. And why I call him my greatest guru is because he taught me my value. He taught me my strength. He taught me my power. And he reflected back to me for the first time my inner worth. And I got in touch with that beautiful child within me and my life shifted Susan you are extraordinary I just have one question in a minute I have a comment go ahead um I don't even know how to phrase this but I feel like I really want to ask a question that doesn't even have an answer but there's some, it just feels like when I'm hearing you talk I just feel like there's this really important connection between the narcissist the codependence and the there's like this addiction that the only way to break the addiction is this no contact and no eye contact like i'm just so curious about like the only way to divorce a narcissist or the only way to break free of the codependence is the no contact i, I might i might say boundaries like, I think that's that's really what all of that is about. I want to go back to something you said before you elaborate on that as well, Susan. You know, you said supply. Mm. And I want to explain to viewers that narcissists need validation, affirmation, praise. Um, and if they don't get it, they eventually do shrivel up and go seek it somewhere else. You said such a beautiful thing. If you stop engaging with the narcissist, they will eventually find someone else to give them what they need mm. to get fed. And we have lots of people in our political and entertainment industry who we're learning are are those people so you talk about it so easily but but narcissism as you said at the earliest part of this conversation is a complicated disorder and you don't know what it means exactly until you see it right in front of you i also want to say susan what incredible work to be able to reframe kind of that that what he was seeing and what you know you were able to take from that experience and grow from it and internalize that beauty and that self-esteem and who you really are as a glowing person right mm. and it's just an amazing reframe that you took from that experience well it's really an incredible gift to be supported yeah by the the two of you in such a beautiful way and your clients are so fortunate like they have no idea oh very kind thank you but um, yes, you're right. And it was a brutal, excruciating process to come to that full understanding. I mean, I always use that spiritual axiom. You point one finger back, three, uh, three come back at you. You point one out, three come back at you. And I used that to stay in some pretty brutal relationships. So yeah. I had to wake up from that spiritual axiom. Yeah. Um, but I really feel maybe it's a little Southern California hooey that I have left in me that <laughs> I chose my lessons before I came in. Most of them anyway, I obviously have free will that I was perfectly placed in the middle of those five kids with wow. those parents that I was really gifted by the sexual abuse that I was confronted with that I was gifted to recover from addiction and learn from that. All these things, these boulders that that are sort of moved around or moved over have been gifts of soul evolution, if I'm willing to see it that way. And once I do, it's really 
really beautiful. I mean, my oldest brother and I have a really strong history of abuse and I love my oldest brother. He is in so much pain in my opinion now because his childhood is blacked out with so much amnesia and he doesn't mm. really understand why pieces of his life aren't fitting together. So in writing this book, I couldn't write it by committee. I had to write this book from my heart and from my own experience. And he read it. He read it in full and I give him a lot of credit. He called me and he said, I admire your strength. I admire what you've experienced and I am proud of you. Oh, that is so beautiful. But it also it's heartbreaking because what I'm hearing is he hasn't found his peace or his healing, that he's in so much pain. He hasn't been able to take the first step towards the work you've done. And that's what I'm praying that this book will do. I mean, Toxic Family was not my title. It's my publisher's title. And I thought, oh, great. We're going to get all Jerry Springer on on people. (laughs) My title was Magical Illumination, Transforming Childhood Trauma into Adult Freedom. Because with all the work I've done now, that's what I feel it's been. But that's not what's going to attract the reader that will benefit by this book. And it was really difficult not to feel like I was really throwing my family under the bus with that title. But that is the beauty. It starts to crack some of the denial so we can hopefully discuss what's real and authentic. And I've always tried to come from a place of love. And toxic families, as you well know, Susan, don't always acknowledge the toxicity because they haven't done, not everyone has done their work, as you just referenced. Um, And so there can be strain. It was interesting that you started today's conversation by saying that you love your family. You found a a place of peace with with your family to understand where they come from. And there's compassion is the word I think I want to use, like compassion in all of that. Like you understand as you talk about what your parents went through in their own childhoods, you have a great deal of compassion for, for them just maybe. And this is where I think the phrase like people doing the best they can. I don't necessarily love it because I think everyone should try to do their work and be a better person and be a good parent and be a good partner and be a good you know friend. But I think there's a reality that that it's really hard to get out of those patterns, especially in generations gone by. Yeah, I think it's not the easier, softer way. But when I engage with my family, I can really see the free place I'm in. I'm like, I'm in a different zip code, you know, I'm engaging, but I I see the confines. I see the restrictions. And what's hardest is I see the pain that, yep. yeah, they, they, I feel they, they sense it on a subconscious level. Mm. But they're still carrying on the facade. And starting that process, as you know, is hard. We need sometimes something to kind of smack us in the face. And for you, it might have been this relationship that just got really, really devastating Mm -hmm. and impossible. And we have nowhere to go but forward. So I think sometimes when we're in those situations, you know, I was in a relationship with a narcissist at one point and I kept going. And New York, by the way. Uh, my older daughter lives in L.A. and works in the industry. So um, I could I'm listening to all of your comments about those two cities. But, you know, the part about it is so I dated this dude and the reality was it took a physical altercation. It took him to do something physical to me and for me to fight back to really end that. And that was the last time I saw him. So uh, you talk about scanning, which I see as empathic ability and you landed in a narcissistic relationship. It's it's very common and I'm not surprised and I'm glad you could move through it and you have the grin, the authentic authentic grin not that plastic one remember that plastic saran wrap we used to have oh my god and you know i'll tell you you're absolutely right so i'm like resonating with your story actually i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you that i wrote i love her uh, to talia a few minutes ago um and i I, sensed it i I could barely i could barely want to stop this we're bursting but the one thought that i had while you were talking about maybe the difference between you And I don't know, 99.9% of traumatized humans in the world is that I have no idea where you got that strength to start a life of brutal honesty 
from this place of just I'm picturing this like tiny little girl caretaking everybody completely out of her body, trying to make everything okay, not even having an internal experience because there's no time and place or safety to have a feeling or a thought. So you're coming from this place of absolute terror and then you're somehow able to find the strength to have brutal honesty with yourself and then I'm thinking about your poor brother right who is sort of maybe more of a typical experience of someone who doesn't even know how to begin can't even there's amnesia and for some it's denial for some it's compartmentalizing for some it's the addiction for some it's numbing but can't even begin to face that pain I think that's the more typical experience. Like, how in the hell did you do this? How, what, how could you even tell someone to be brave enough or strong enough to take that first step? I think that was in the fabric of my being. I think that was one of the tools I was sent down with to, to take on all I have. And that was one of the priceless gifts of my being so because I can't explain it any other way and that's also why I feel I'm finally living my purpose yeah it's beautiful so with the coaching that you do what how do you what advice do you give people well first they have to be aware right they come in they may not even be aware and then they have to accept where they are which is another brutal piece of it. And from there you can take action, but you know, really it's about telling your story because a lot of us haven't even had the opportunity to do that honestly and really be heard. And then from there to move on with, with addressing it. And I always go into self-soothing and self-soothing tools because most of us are traumatized, you know, living with our shoulders up in our earlobes and that's the natural state we know no differently, but it's been a privilege to work one-to-one, but I'm really hoping I can go more the group level because I'm seeing such a strong need. And the more of us that wake up and address this, the more of us there are to help others that are struggling. You know, Susan, you mentioned something too about like, you need to be aware, like that's a starting gate. And what I always tell people is, how do you feel? Like when people are struggling in their relationships, I ask people, how do you feel when you're with that person? How do you feel when you're away from that person? And I know you get this based on your story, but there's anxiety, there's worry, there's always not knowing what you're going to get. And if you're in an anxiety ridden relationship, pay attention to that and know that that is not a secure attachment. It is not a it's probably a familiar attachment. And I think traumatized people pick very familiar people in their lives. Right. We pick the same types of people over and over until we figure it out that it does not work and that it hurts and that we're always on edge. You know, the Mm -hmm. shit that you put up with in your relationship, the shit that some of us put up with in our relationship. I love that you are touching yourself and feeling uh, contained, I'm assuming, connected to your body. Um, And I've seen that multiple times today. I love that you do that. But, you know, Susan, the reality is when we pay attention to that, we have to know that that's something that is not good for us. And we have to address it and we have to figure out, like, pay attention. So I love that that was your starting gate on when you coach people through this. Well, and also with trauma, I feel like you just sent something to me about many people's experience with trauma is that red flags and butterflies feel exactly the same because it's familiar and it's exciting and it feels like love. It feels like the only familiar love. Yeah. Susan, what if we're in love with you? And what if this was the best? I feel like this was like the best. That you're like, I, when I found you, other people's comments about you were that you were magical, magical, mad. She's magical. She's mad. And I was like, I'd like to know a little more about this magical human being. Well, now we know. We know. And, you know, Susan, this is one of those interviews. Um, I don't always write. I love the person on my paper. That's um, first. I kind of want to go over and over and over some things i have so many more questions mm-hmm. i want to know so much more about your story we might we need might a part need a, two we might need a part two. i am not feeling finished at all i know we love you i feel like we're and just like starting this conversation and there's so many more follow-ups susan how can people find you 
how can our listeners find you and all of your magic? And we'll have everything in the show notes um, so people can click and buy your book and whatever they want. The book's on Amazon. And if you feel moved to speak with me directly, just go to susangold.us. It's all there. And Doug and Talia, I just want to say, I am so grateful the two of you collided that you've created this podcast. We're not fine. That you create the conversation that you do, that you have the brilliance and the ability to communicate the way that you do. And I really appreciate all the content you're producing. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes finance. Who wants to get up on a Sunday morning and do this? But thank Hi. you both. I'm on my knees humbled. You have a fan. Susan, thank you so much for those incredibly kind and thoughtful words. It really has been a gift having you on today. I'm so glad that we collided as well. Yeah. And I just feel like this is such an important story. I cannot wait for it to air and for people to be moved in this way and right. to find you and the magic that you're putting out there in the world. We literally could not love you more. And thank you so much for being in our world and on the show. Thank you, Susan, so much for your time. Thank you both. And thanks to your listeners. Thank you, my dear. We'll talk soon. As always, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope that you got as much value out of this last episode as we did. I must tell you, you know, I think this particular episode, of course, could have gone on and on and on. I had a million more questions, but we also encourage you to go to we'renotfine.com where you can submit any questions about any relationship issue you have, friends, family, coworkers, whatever it is in your life. If you even have questions about your relationship with yourself, please let us know. You can anonymously, you can put your name on it. We'll give your first name maybe. Um, but, you know, we would love for you to ask questions to us so we can ponder them on the We're Not Fine podcast. And when you're done liking, subscribing, sharing with all of your favorite people or even your enemies, we'll take that too. Yeah. Find us on social media. Dr. Talia Jackson, Douglas L. Jensen with an E-N and We're Not Fine pod. And we're also on YouTube. And I believe it's just We're Not Fine. And we cannot wait to see you next week. We're looking forward to it. And we're not fine, but... At least it's pumpkin spice season at our local coffee shops. If you like cardamom, which I hate. <laughs> <laughs> love I guys. love cardamom. 